to the great and governing principle in the Bible and for our experience of Christ contained in John 15, 4a, where the Lord says, Abide in me and I in you. And this refers to him as the fulfillment of the tree of life. So this is a principle regarding our experience of the Lord as the tree of life that we amazingly, incredibly, he, the processed and consummated God, has prepared a way for us to enjoy him as the tree of life by entering into him, to abide in him, and as a result, he can fully release all that he desires to be everything to us. Uh, and so, um, he um, would like to encourage us in this matter. He'd like to give us a deeper feeling. First, he would tell us, oh, you can abide in me. Then he would, he would, he would say, abide in me. In other, words, in other words, this isn't just an informational statement. It's an urging. It's an imperative. Abide in me and I in you. Uh, but far beyond this being something that we simply uh, choose to do positionally, abide in him versus not abiding in him or abiding outside of him, he would like to let us know that this abide in me is an invitation, is uh, expression of a yearning, that we would come into him to supply his longing for us in personal, intimate fellowship and relationship. And that by our coming into him, we experience what otherwise could never be experienced. We find out what it is to be royal. We find out what it is to be, to live in the substance of agape love. We find out that to enable this, he has processed himself in such a way to be not only the spirit as this tree of life into which we can enter, but to be the word of God as this spirit tree of life in which we can enter. And when we open the Bible, the purpose of doing so and what's accomplished by doing so is we can enter into him and abide in him. And this is the a chief function of the word of God. So this session is to having understood that there's the possibility that we can abide in him, enter into him to abide in him. And this is a key to our Christian experience to show us that this is an ultimate experience. An inexplicable experience. Something that you and I cannot and should not consider neglecting and leaving unaccessed 
by us. So, um, I was helped by one of the uh, brothers who, who shared the microphone. Actually, I was helped by every single person who shared the microphone after the meeting. It was lovely, lovely sharing and confirmation. But uh, one of the brothers uh, pointed out, as we reread uh, the title for message two, uh, reread the title, Abiding in Christ to Maintain Our Organic Union with Him, that it's possible for our organic union to not, with the Lord, to not be maintained. Now, does this mean that we lose our union with the Lord and we lose thus our salvation and our salvation is gone? No, we need to understand that once we are regenerated, born from above, as is true of every conception, the union of the two that occurs in that conception is irreversible. Our union with the Lord by virtue of our regeneration can never be tainted, can never be corrupted, can never be undone. Nothing can happen to it. But we have to remember that the Lord who came to us in our regeneration did so for the purpose of establishing an indescribable relationship of mingling with us, as we mentioned in the first session. In this relationship, he must and does take on a certain role. He is, to use the spousal metaphor, he is the husband, but he is the most virtuous husband. So he assumes the closest, most intimate position of love, intending relationship to ensue, and waits there. And so our organic union with the Lord is the station and the parlor, the place, if you will, where he is waiting in the universe and in your being our lovely Lord is waiting. And as he waits in our union with him, he has determined that he will be quiescent. Quiet. Unimposing. And won't say anything unless the one for whom he has intention, the one for whom he has his heart set, corresponds, responds, invites, engages, then, as we said last time, receiving the necessary signal of approval, the necessary permission, he rises up and expresses his feeling and engages in the relationship that he desires. So, because he is this way, and this is the explanation why he's this way, because of the relationship he intends, he is quiet in our union with him, and so that union with him is 
in a sense, not yet fully experiential, not yet fully activated, not yet fully potentiated, and is waiting for that to happen. When it happens, if it happens, it happens because we determine now is the time. And we no longer want to be apart from him, and we say yes to him, and and he responds. And our organic union with him becomes experienced, experiential, real, touching, Strong, even dynamic, even dynamic. That sense and that experience, that sensation, and that interpersonal atmosphere is supposed to be there in his intention all the time, continuously, without interruption, without variance, decrement. But in our experience, this isn't the case. So when we talk about maintaining our organic union with him, we're talking about engaging him, experiencing him, having his presence, having him released in in our being. And now we find out that those things, having his presence, having him released in our being, are awaiting our realization that we are entering into him, entering into him, as the, not just situation, but as the place where we engage mutually in the mingling relationship, the divine and human mingling relationship that he intends. Wow. What a divine and human life we have. What a Christian life we have. It's not just a life of dutifully keeping to a church schedule, meeting schedule. Not merely memorizing verses. These are wonderful helps and supports. But he wants us to enter into this experience as the basis for our zeal for the Lord and our love for the Lord's word and our love for the church life and our participation of the church life and our entry into the vital group living. This is the base. So, in this session, in this session, the outline points focus on intimacy of personal relationship. So when you enter into Christ as the tree of life to abide in him, you're not just entering into a vacuum, a space where you're supposed to be. Okay, you can check the mark off. You're in attendance in the place where you're supposed to be. No, this is a place of intimate, personal interaction. Mysteriously, when you're in this interaction, it's as if it's only you and the Lord in that interaction. And in the universe, in this universe of this incredible person who is the divine bridegroom, There's no one there but him and you. You're it. On the earth and representing the ages, you're it. But 
at the same time, because of the virtue of this organic union that we talked about, he's able to engage me that way and be the only one for me and me the only one for him. And also for you, Brother Paul, at the same time, and Bill and Phil, simultaneously. And so we're all corporately in the same experience. This individual corporate experience is one of the bridegroom gaining his bride by that bride releasing him by entering into him to abide in him. The principle we're talking about this weekend is that effective, that marvelous, and that powerful. So to get into the sense of I only mentioned some of the senses of royalty, of being royal, the sense of um, intimate spousal feeling of romantic love, the sense of, I'm home. I'm home. This is where I'm supposed to be. I'm home. I may have thought I was home before. I'm home now. I don't want to leave. I'm home. Have you ever felt that way? I'm home. When you came to your church meeting in the Lord's Recovery and you felt that way, or shortly thereafter, that was a foretaste of this very more substantial feeling we enter into when we begin to abide in Him. Well, so I don't uh, use up all the time with introductory words. Uh, let's let's get into this incredible outline for tonight and have some incentive and impetus to move into him, to abide in him, to maintain our organic union with him, which is the feeling of delight, of richness, of warmth, of light, of his rich presence in intimate fellowship. So here's an incredible point, point number one. I'll read it to you. We need to abide in Christ as our king and as our royal abode so that he can abide in us to make us his queen and his royal palace his glorious church. Hallelujah. So, if anyone were to ask you, what is the deepest of the Psalms? Then, after tonight you will know, if you didn't know already, that the deepest of the Psalms is Psalm 45. Psalm 45, which shows... Christ, the king, with his corporate bride, the church, as the queen. This is the deepest of the Psalms. And can you believe that John 15, 4a is the secret to enter, to give you entrance into the deepest of the Psalms? So, how is Psalm 45 applied? 
It's applied by you realizing that when you enter into the Lord as the tree of life and do so in the way and with the considerations that we had in the first meeting, when you do that, when you do that, you're actually, you're actually um, entering into the Lord as the, as the royal king and bridegroom. And that by doing that, he then has permission, has your assent, to enter into you as his queen and make you as unlikely as it would seem to match him to be his queen. And when he does this corporately, that's the church. So this is marvelous. So in the same way we, we underlined that in, was it uh, Roman numeral 2 uh, of message 1, here we have so that we abide in Christ as our king and royal abode so that he can abide in us as his queen in his royal palace, his glorious church. So, saints, the purpose of this point is for you to realize, would you like to be someone who uh, can't help but overflow with praises for the Lord? Whose heart is filled with a good thing? whose tongue is the pen of a ready writer? Well, all you have to do is enter into Christ as the tree of life. And when you get into him, you'll find out that he is the one that you always longed for. That you always wanted. And that every need, every aspiration, every longing you had is fulfilled there. And that he then is released in you to make you just like him to match him. So in the, in the reference verses here, in verse uh, 13... The king's daughter, that's, that's uh, us in one representation in this verse, we enter into him to be the royal abode. And then as a result, as a result, he is able to enter into her to be her royal palace. Now this is, this is to, again, give some feeling to this. Make this wonderful. So, let's go back to John chapter 3, the chapter on regeneration. And so in John chapter 3, verse 29, there's one of three marvelous uh, declarations of the Lord's forerunner, John. And these three declarations of the Lord's forerunner, John, now try to follow me if you would, if you would please, trace the normal experience of the Christian life from the time of regeneration until we enter into him as the tree of life to become his bride. 
So here are the three declarations. First John 1, 29. John declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This represents our early registration in our Christian life after we're regenerated. The load of sin has been taken off. And we realize that the Lord died for us as the redeeming Lamb. And we're so grateful to Him And our registration is that of John. We appreciate the Lord as our Redeemer and what he did for us. This is the normal, early experience of the Christian life. Then, the next verse is verse 36, where John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And you might think, well, did you forget the next phrase? Well, the fact that John left off who takes away the sin of the world is because this sequence traces the advancing registration and realization of the Christian life. Initially, we appreciate him, but especially we appreciate him because of what he did for us. As we go on, we appreciate him not just because of what he did for us, but we, we become, we realize what he did for us is so that he would win us, gain us for himself. And what we appreciate is his person. You see the difference? First, it's the Lamb of God who. Now it's just, Lord, I behold you, the Lamb of God. The person, the person is important. Now, in the third statement, which is in John chapter 3, this chapter on regeneration, uh, verses 29 and 30, John says, regarding this one, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. So we go from realizing that he's a wonderful person, is our redeemer who has saved us and done everything for us. That's initial. We grow from there, we realize, Lord, Your person is all valuable, peerless, incomparable, and is all that matters. And then from there, we go further to realize, Lord, what you intend for me is that I would be personally, intimately, and affectionately involved with you as a bride with her bridegroom. And you are my bridegroom, and I am your bride. And he who has the bride is the bridegroom. This is, this is a further declaration of John's. And this draws our heart and causes us to realize what our Christian life is for. It's to found us, to bring us into this kind of intimate relationship with him. Now, finally, verse 30. I must decrease. He must increase. Many readers think that because when John spoke that at that time, at that time there was a complaint that his disciples, John's disciples, were joining the Lord. And so for John to decrease means that his disciples were less, 
and for the Lord's increase that his disciples were more. So this is one of the wonderful and mysterious statements in the Bible that has a dual significance. It did mean that. It did mean that. But this wasn't the main thing it means. What it means is, what it means is, that this one who is the bridegroom was going to go to the cross as the Lamb of God, was going to pass through death into resurrection, and in resurrection was going to become the bridegroom. And as the bridegroom, he was going to bring, bring those who were with him into himself. And they, being brought into himself, would cause him, who is universally large and cannot increase, to increase because before you were outside of him and now you're inside of him, so he's increased. So the increase there is the increase of Christ as the pneumatic universal bridegroom into whom you have now entered as the tree of life and once you're within, you find out he's the bridegroom. This is the place for me to become the bride. Everything happens here. This is a place filled with intimate fellowship and love. Now, this is intended to give you interest in abiding in him. (laughs) This place is incomparable. This place is the only thing that can actually satisfy you. You were made to be there. Nothing short of it can satisfy you. And once you're there, all you have to do is get there. Once you're there, everything else happens spontaneously with him as the factor, as the energizer. He does everything for you as a good husband should. All you have to do is get there. When you get there, you find out you're royal. You find out you're in the place of spousal love. And you find out, as we'll see in the next point, that I'm home. I'm home. Is there anyone here who doesn't feel their home? If you don't feel your home, it's because you haven't, you're not abiding thoroughly enough. This is, this is the unique place that is your home. So subpoint A says, Oh, to abide in Christ, saints, is to dwell in Him. The one who is the King, the Bridegroom, with that kind of sense, and with that kind of reactivity of an environment, an environment that's able to make you His Queen. There, there, you dwell in Him. And you find out that now, there, you're in the eternal God. As our Lord, now as this wonderful dwelling place, having our living in Him and taking Him as our everything. So in the reference verses, there are, there's an emphasis here on the Lord is our habitation. Oh, for this to go beyond just Doctrinal recitation. The Lord is our habitation. So, 
it tells us in Deuteronomy 33:27, the God of old is your habitation, and you are underneath eternal arms. Eternal arm, or and underneath are. So you're being held. Your habitation is to be enclosed and embraced by the arms of the eternal God, and that is your home. And when we call on the Lord and interact with Him regarding our simple drinking a cup of water, we find ourselves drawn by that event and experience into Him to be embraced in these eternal arms. Then Psalm 90, verse 1 says, O Lord, You have been our dwelling place for all generations. So Psalm 90, as you know, is a psalm, uh, and I think we'll have a further reference to it. Uh, yes, in the next word, in the next point, is is a psalm of Moses. So Moses, in his, in the song of Moses, which he sang on the riverbanks of the Nile after after. Pharaoh was defeated. In his song, he talked, he talked about being guided to God's habitation. Now here he says, he says, he says, from eternity to eternity, God is our habitation. So what this means is, in eternity, in eternity, God determined, God determined that you would dwell in Him. In eternity, in its continuation, you will fully dwell in Him. Now, in time, in your lifetime, the God who is your dwelling place from eternity to eternity is to be chosen by you, entered into by you, to abide in Him and to live in Him. So John 15, 4a is simply reiterating in crystallized form the revelation of the entire Old Testament that God wants us to live within Him and to be our dwelling place. And for you to feel at home and to be home is involves your learning to be in and dwell in God. My. Praise the Lord. This is wonderful. So related to this, with Moses having written this, he, Brother Lee says, Psalm 90 is written by Moses about Christ. The author is the lawgiver. The subject is the grace giver. Both the lawgiver, Moses, and the grace giver, Christ, told us that we need to dwell in God. <laughs> so... Um, let me just uh, read to you an excerpt from the Life Study of Psalms, Message 35, page 400. To dwell in our house means that we have our living there in many different ways. For instance, I eat my meals at home, 
sitting in my comfortable seat at a dining table. Often we speak of eating Christ. But we need to see that when we eat Christ, we should be dwelling in Him. So, do you see here? Dwelling is the basis. Back to John 15.4. We take care of the dwelling, and then as we're dwelling in God, we will have multiple, many experiences of Him, and every experience of our daily living is to occur there as we're living and dwelling in God. And these experiences, again, fill and adorn His house as the dwelling place. Oh, isn't this marvelous? So he also said, do any of you travel a lot? So really traveled a lot, I guess. So people would say, where do you live? And he would say, uh, hard to say. They would ask him this question on the airplane. Where do you live? And he'd say, hard, hard to say. And, uh, and he, he would say, um, uh, my dwelling place is this airplane as I dwell in God. So in other words, in other words, when you're in the office, you're in a sense in your office, but you're in God. You're in the bus. You're dwelling in the bus. You're, you're in the bus, but you're in God. You're eating, drinking, and experiencing the Lord in different ways. All this happens as we place ourselves and realize our conscience that we're dwelling, that we're dwelling in God. So this experience may seem profound, but it's as simple as realizing, Lord, you've opened your being for me to enter. By turning my heart to you, by conversing with you, yes, by calling on, on your name, I enter into you, abide, and you enter into me, and now you just want me to be in the principle of dwelling, of making home, which means that it's not fun to just buy a house and be there two days a year, or be there for 15 minutes and then leave it. But to dwell implies established presence. So the Lord wants you to have your established presence in Him so He can have His established presence in you and you can live together. This basic understanding of our living in God is uh, included in John 15:4a, abide in me. Now, point B says, we need to dwell in God, living in Him every minute. For outside of Him, there are sins and afflictions. So, <laughs> in uh, Psalm 90, verse 3 through 11, you'll remember that in this verse, um, Moses, who was 80 years old, said that uh, if a man's strong and he's lucky, he'll live to be 80. And Moses was 80, so he realized that 
It was over, basically. It was over in a chronologic human age sense. But because he was dwelling in God, who is his dwelling place from eternity to eternity, he was, he was in eternity in time. So, do you want to be in a place that's passing away? In a situation where everything is fleeting? Here's, here's some of the utterances. Verse 9, We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The days of our years are 70 years, or if because of strength, 80. But their pride is labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Now, this is the human life outside of taking God as your habitation. Now, is this not an incentive to dwell, abide in me? When you do, you're in the one who is our dwelling place from eternity to eternity and nothing can efface or displace. So point C says, yeah, so, so would, you, would you like to be where sins and afflictions are? John 16.3. Or would you like to be in the bridegroom? So this is to impel us there. Point C. To take God as our habitation, our eternal dwelling place, is the highest and fullest experience of God. And so Psalm 91, uh, this, this was an observation made in the commentary on this, on this psalm. Psalm 91 also indicates that the eternal God is our habitation and that that eternal God was embodied in Christ, passed through the cross, became the Spirit, as the Spirit opened his being, so God now could literally be dwelled in, dwelt in. And as we dwell in him, he indwells us. And this is our life and our church life. Wonderful. Wonderful. So Psalm 91.1 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So when we call on the Lord, turn our heart to Him, and enter into Him, we are entering into the secret place. So this is a secret place to which you have access. It's royal. It's lovely. It's uh, a place where you can rest and be satisfied. And it's, it's secret. It's, 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 it's there just for you. It's just, just there for you. And there, you're in the shadow of the Almighty. My wonderful, wonderful. So, um, all this, all this point about his being our dwelling place as the king in Psalm 45 and as our eternal habitation in Psalm 90 and 91 is to cause us to say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, you made your being accessible to me. I can enter into you and dwell in you and live in you and have the experiences of my daily living there. Well, let's see some more. 
So um, in Roman numeral 2 it says, We abide in Christ so that he, he may abide in us by loving Him. So, how is it, how is it that we enter into Him? We will see in uh, this point and also, um, I believe just a little bit later, but we'll see, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's for, for tomorrow, we'll see that the best way to enter into Him is to love Him. So He draws us by loving us. We reciprocate, and as we love Him, as we love Him, we enter into Him. So this is back to the principle of our regeneration. It's a principle that no one is regenerated without being caused to love Lord Jesus. So the heart, the turned heart of every new believer a heart turned to him is a heart that if you were to describe it, it's filled with love for the Lord. So the principle of regeneration states that in that love for the Lord in which we entered into him at the time of our regeneration, we continue to love him, and the more we love him, the more we abide in him. And the more we abide in him, the more he's able to abide in us and release his operation in us. Now, these two verses that were referred to at the microphone after the first session are very lovely verses and show, uh, give some secrets as to how uh, we can abide in him. So uh, <clears throat> in um, John 14.1, I've mentioned this to some of you that I recognize in the audience, um, but here's a repetition. In John John. Uh, 14.1, it says, um, Believe in God, believe also in me. But actually the prepositions there are once again not the simple in. They're li literally the Greek word ice, which means into. So John 14 says, Believe into God. That's our regeneration. And he says, Believe into me. Which which literally means believe into the inside of me. So when we believe in the Lord, we're believing into the inside of Him to view our surrounds and our world from within the inside of the Lord Jesus. What a marvelous thing. Now, uh, John... Um, 14, 21, and 23 indicate the relationship between our loving the Lord and our abiding in Him and He in us. So as you know, John uh, as background, John 14, 20, as was referred to, says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me. So in the day of resurrection, the Lord's emphasis was, we were brought into him. We were brought into him. Then in the next verse, it says something like, he who loves me, he it is who will obey, will keep my commandment, or keep my word. And I will manifest 
and um, the Father and I will manifest ourselves to him. Can you read it for me, Paul? Yeah, you could, you could just... He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself. Right, okay. So, we love him. We love him. That's verse 21. Verse 21. For, for now, that's all. So, so we love him as a result, as a result of loving him. We'll see, we'll see tomorrow. As a result of loving him, we have, we have his word in us and we keep his word. We'll get into this more tomorrow. We have his word in us and we keep his word. Then the Father and the Lord love us and manifest themselves, manifest themselves to us. And so this means that they make themselves known. They're present, they're present to us. Then in verse 23, very similar, the word there, commandment is rendered word. But by our loving the Lord, the Father and the Son come to us and make an abode with us. And so if you compare these verses... Verse 20 refers to our regeneration where we're in him in verse 20. Now by being in him in verse, in verse 20, based upon our being in him in verse 20, in verse 21, he and the Father are able to come to us and manifest themselves to us based upon our loving him and responding to the word he speaks within us. Then in verse 23, what happens is his presence, his manifestation, becomes fixed, becomes set. But what in verse 21 is his presence in manifestation becomes his permanent set presence in abode. My Father and I will come to you and make an abode with you. So the sequence here is verse 20, we enter into him. Verse 21, based upon that, on the other side of John 15, 4a, based upon our abiding in him, he abides in us. He comes to us and manifests himself to us. Then the more we love him, that manifestation becomes more fixed, more sure, more firm, and eventually it's set, and he's made his abode with us. So our taking him as our abode results in his making his abode in us. But the propelling factor there, if you trace the difference between verse 21 and verse 23, is that as we're in him, we love him. We love him. And so, by our loving him, we enter into him to abide in him. As we abide in him, we love him. He manifests himself to us and makes his abode with us. So point A says, when we love the Lord Jesus, he manifests himself to us, and the Father comes with him to make an abode with us for our enjoyment. This abode is a mutual abode in which the triune God abides in us, and we abide in him. Then point B, the more we love the Lord, the more we will have his presence. And the more we are in his presence, 
And the more we are in His presence, the more we will enjoy all that He is to us. The Lord's recovery is the recovery of loving the Lord Jesus. So, saints, if we add here verse 20, this, co- this corresponds to John 15:4, where we abide in Him, then He abides in us, and that abiding becomes full. And this is our, this is our Christian life. And it's a lovely matter. When we're within the bridegroom living, everything is nupital. Everything is marital. Everything is relational. Everything is sweet and intimate. Do you want to have a life that way? Then the more you're in him, in this atmosphere, you can't help but love him. Then as you love him, it releases him within you. You get his manifestation. And eventually... His, he's making his abode fully in you. You're abiding in him. He's abiding in you. And you found the secret of living. Now, point three. <clears throat> we abide in Christ so that he may abide in us by our caring for the inward teaching of the all-inclusive anointing. So we had a reference to this verse in uh, message one, especially with emphasis on the last phrase, where the teaching of the anointing is to tell us to abide in him. Abide in him. Then as we abide in him, he abides in us, and we have his, his speaking, his, his anointing, his communication. Um, and so, here we're looking at the relationship between between our abiding in him, our realizing that we're entering into him to live in him, and the release of the anointing, the penetrating, the enriching, the divinization, the sweetening of our, of our inner being, the transformation of our inner being, all this happens as a result of our abiding in him and the anointing abiding, abiding in us. So, um, here... Um, I was sharing with the brothers this morning that in the uh, the Lord's wisdom, in the Lord's wisdom, He would use the perception, our perception, of our surroundings to further His work within us. He doesn't want to be quiescent within us. He doesn't want to be unknown within us. He doesn't want our organic union with Him to be unmaintained. So, but, he's got this receding, virtuous, bridegroom demeanor where I'm just going to wait. So there's no response, no response, no response. So what is he going to do? So he's got to have some, he's got to bring us some prompts. (laughs) Some reminders. Some alarms have to go off. Say, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, I am a believer. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, and so, do things ever go crazy in your environment? They get wild, and sometimes they happen in a way, now wait a minute. And you realize, this isn't just random. 
This didn't just happen. Something's going on here. And remember, when adverse things happen in the environment, remember, 90%, more than 90% of them, are not the Lord working in your environment. They're the enemy's attack. So don't think every time something happens in your, in your environment that isn't pleasant, the Lord did that. No. No. But there is a side where the Lord will work in your environment to try to wake you up. So, the balance between the anointing within and the outward environment is like this. Is like this. The anointing is going on and there's no response. So, the Lord works in the environment to get our attention. Now, the lovely thing here is that what the anointing is doing is he's, he's whispering, Ryan, I love you. Ryan, I love you. So you can find this in The Operation of God and the Anointing. Is the name of the book you can find this in? The Operation of God and the Anointing. And so, and so if you don't love him and respond to his whispers of love to you, what's he going to do? So he'll try to... He won't from within... But from without, he may try to speak something a little bit more definite and get your attention and make you, bring you to your senses. Bring you to, to your senses. Okay, so you can live that way, either having your outward environment um, get unruly because you're not responding to him, because eventually, saints, without our abiding in him, we hit a ceiling in our responsiveness to the Lord. Our inner being is too complicated. Too many things going on inside. We lose our bearings and we lose track and he just is relegated to no position at all within us. And our organic union with him is unmaintained. So the environment rises up. So you can have that kind of situation or... You can abide in him. The other relationship between the abiding and your circumstances is if you realize in your circumstances that those circumstances are the setting and the matrix and the framework for you to be abiding in him as your realm of life and living and your various experiences, whether they're a little bit tumultuous or not, are the occasion for you to gain and apply him, the anointing is released within you. So, you can either have a situation where you learn to abide in him and the anointing within you is released, or you can wait for you to have a flat tire, a close call at the traffic light, uh, a bounce check, a... Uh, a pink slip, other things. So which do you want? Isn't it better to be in the royal uh, bridegroom eternal dwelling place and have the anointing released within you? Wouldn't you rather have that? Okay, subpointing. Subpointing. <clears throat> 
we abide in the divine fellowship with Christ by experiencing the cleansing of the Lord's blood and the application of the anointing spirit to our inner being. And so um, I mentioned a little bit about this in the first message, and that is that our experience of these, our experience of these is uh, personal and inward. Inward, inwardly, we have the experience of the cleansing of the Lord, Lord's blood and the application of the anointing spirit to our being to transform and, and, re, and renew us. But actually, in the principle of John 15, 4a, the anointing and its application to our inner being based upon the cleansing of the blood comes after our abiding in him. And it doesn't mean that we won't have the cleansing of the blood and the applying of the, of the ointment at all, but for there to be the free operation and the ongoing continuous cleansing, this is a matter of our, of, of our abiding. Saints, when we enter into the Lord to abide in him as the marvelous, consummated spirit, the pneumatic Christ within him, Within him, there is ongoing fellowship. In that fellowship, there's light. In that light, there's a realization of anything that needs to be cleared up between us and the motivation to do so. Then there's the confession and the cleansing of the Lord's blood. And more fellowship and the application of the ointment, the Lord himself, to our inner being. It's a great light, saints. It's a great light that this experience that we treasure in John chapter 1 is not mainly remedial. It is remedial. It does allow us to come back to him. But what he intends is for us to abide in him and for us to be in a realm where the light is shining all the time where the blood is cleansing us all the time. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. Walk in light. So where's light? What is light? God. So walk in the light is what? Walk in God. So to walk in God is to abide in Him. We're abiding in Him. And as we do, we're in God as light. And we confess our sins, and he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness in an ongoing way. Not just as a crisis experience, and we realize we failed to the uttermost, so we apply the blood. Praise the Lord for that application. But what he really wants is he wants this to be our ongoing experience. And our organic union with him to be maintained, our fellowship with him to be maintained. For us to remain in that fellowship. To stay in that fellowship. We've been called into this fellowship. We're to stay in that fellowship. So the church life is the wonderful setting for us to explore this with one another. To encourage one another. Our vital group is for us to explore this together. To encourage one another in this. And to live this and pursue this together. Corporately as a group. 
Oh, this is marvelous, saints. There's nothing routine about our church life. There's nothing mechanical. There's nothing just devotional. We're pursuing the ultimate experience of Christ that He has prepared and intended for us. So point B under 3 says, Christ as the head is the anointed one and the anointing one, and we are his members, enjoying him as the inner anointing for the fulfillment of God's purpose. Now, um, these points show, this point is on the anointing, and these points just confirm that the way to get the voluminous release of anointing into our being is to enter into him. And there, the ointment is being applied and is abundant all the time. So in, in uh, Hebrews 1.9, he is the one who is anointed. He's the anointed one, the one who is anointed above his partners. And then in um, Hebrews 3.14, we are his partners. He was uh, anointed above, uh, above us. But then in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22, we are, by God, attached to the anointed one as his partners. This refers to our coming to him, entering into him, and now he anoints us. And as he anoints us, then that releases into our hearts the spirit as a pledge. So isn't this amazing? You see this principle again and again. We enter into him. We enter into him this time as the anointed one. And we get the voluminous anointing. And then that anointing that we sense outwardly in this realm that we enter into releases the anointing within our being and uh, he abides in us. Abide in me and I in you. So um, these are additional lovely verses here. Then... uh, Point C says, the anointing as the moving and working of the compound spirit within us anoints God into us so that we may be saturated with God, possess God, understand the mind of God. The anointing communicates the mind of Christ as the head of the body to his members by the inner sense the inner consciousness of life. So, saints, this is a, a marvelous description of the anointing. When we abide in Him, it releases the anointing in us, and we experience these things. So, Psalm 133. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity, in oneness. Like the fine ointment that descends down the beard and all the garments of Aaron to his feet, right? To his feet. Aaron here signifies Christ, the anointed one who is anointed by God, and the anointing flows forth from him over his entire body, and where are we? Aaron representing here Christ, the pneumatic one, is the one into whom we have entered. And we are his members there. 
And the, anoint, the anointing has been poured onto him, and now it's just flowing down onto us. And in our experience, this anointing is also thusly released in our being, and from our spirit, from our organic union, he's able to enter into our mind, emotion, and will, and anoint himself into them, making them new, restructured, remodeled, and reclaimed. And then, uh, the next verse, 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ, the mind of the Lord. So, the mind of the Lord is transmitted through his anointing, and the anointing is ours through abiding in him. So, when we have this consciousness, this blessed consciousness, that we're abiding in him, in the common affairs of 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 our daily living. This keeps us joined to him in our union with him. And our mind is one with his and we have the mind of Christ and we're inexplicably wonderful persons. We do what he does. We act as he acts. We speak as he speaks. His thoughts are our thoughts as a result of our abiding in him. Now, all this is supposed to be uh, accumulative layers of incentive for us to want to abide in him as the tree of life. And as our brother mentioned at the microphone, yes, we have life and peace. As we enjoy the anointing within us, which results from our abiding, and we respond to that anointing. Uh, this involves, in Romans 8, 6, the setting of our mind on the spirit, and we have life and peace. And then in Romans uh, eight twenty seven. Yes. In Romans 8, 6, in Romans 8, 6, our mind is set on our spirit. And then as we have that life and peace there, then the spirit has a mind. Now, guess whose mind that is. That mind is the mind of our human faculty now joined to the mind of the Spirit and we partaking of his thought have the mind of the Spirit and we know what the mind of the Spirit is. So all this is related to the anointing which comes from the abiding. Then point D, when the head wants a member of the body to move, he intimates it through the inner anointing. And as we yield to the anointing, life flows freely from the head to us. If we resist the anointing, our relationship with the head is interfered with, 
and the flow of life within us is stopped. So again, let's remember that this point is under Roman numeral 3, which is to tell us that the full experience of the anointing comes as a result of our abiding in him. As a result of our abiding in him. So when we, when we abide in him, when we abide in him, he is able then, he is able then to indicate through the anointing within us how he wants us to move and what he wants us to do. Perhaps one of you is about to apply to college. Where do you go to school? I spoke with someone not long ago. They're looking into a, an advanced medical professional program, and they have several options. Where do they go? And so I was asked, Brother, how should I choose? How do I, how do I figure this out? And we've all got the, the convention that we make a chart Pro, con. And we weigh the pros and cons and give each a numerical value and we do a calculation and we arrive at a decision. Have you ever done that? Well, that will take you a certain direction and the Lord will be with you. The Lord, Lord, the Lord will let you go that direction and he will take care of you. But... What he wants you to do to answer all these questions is to abide in him. You abide in him and he will gently make known to you what he'd like you to do. And he'll give you a sense within. You spend time in him, within him, not necessarily grilling him. Lord, tell me what program I'm supposed to choose. You just, you just enjoy being within the kingly bridegroom and being in your eternal habitation, and just resting at home, and then just check, and you'll notice within, oh, that's where. Okay, I'm clear. This is right. This is what happens. An undeniable, recognizable sense will arise in you. Oh, that's what I do. No one told you. No one directed you. But by... Entering into him, abiding in him, it releases the anointing within you. He makes known his thought. You have the mind of the spirit, and the anointing just gives you a sense. Oh. And if because of complications in this process, you don't sense something, it probably doesn't matter. You just stay abiding in him, and everything's going to be okay anyway. In a sense, when we're abiding in him, saints, now just a sense, there's a sense in which it doesn't matter. It's taken care of. If you go this fork or this fork of the why, if you choose the right one, the outcome of that right course is simply for you to learn to abide in him. That's the purpose of that fork. And if you take the other one, the purpose of that fork is to cause you 
instruct you, learn you, teach you, counsel you, to abide in him. And so if you take care of abiding in him, you'll have a sense of what to, what to do and where to go. But if you don't, it's okay. Just if you take care of the abiding, you'll be all right. This is true, saints. This is true. And he will bless you extraordinarily as you abide in him. He vividly will make himself real to you, and you'll have the assurance. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for directing me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So let's go on to Roman number four. So Roman number four says, and I I believe uh, this, this is a lovely point regarding the word. So the function of the word of God is, I'm going to give, give you a thesis and then restate it. The function of the word of God is to cause you to fall irreversibly and irrecoverably in love with him. This is the primary governing function of the word of God. I repeat, when the word came to you at the time of your regeneration, what it did was it caused you to love him by bringing into your being the loving capacity and wherewithal that you didn't have before. You couldn't have loved before if you wanted to. Now suddenly, you can and you do. Now the word of God is to bring this out, to cause this to flourish, to make you a person who's filled with love and feeling. For who? For him. And derivatively, for all those who are abiding in him, with you. But so this is the function of the word. But restated, the word is to cause you to abide in him. Because we've seen, I hope a little bit tonight, and we'll see some more tomorrow, that eventually these two are inseparable. Our loving him brings us to abide in him. As we abide in him, we'll love him more. And as we love him more and abide in him, it releases the anointing within us, which speaks to us and whispers to us, oh, I love you, and cause us to love him. See, we're a pretty unreactive counterpart of the Lord. And we're, we're kind of like a cold chicken. And he wants to warm us up and get us to be as crazy as he is. Not easy. Not easy. So he's, he's prepared two things. As we abide in him, we will love him. And as we abide in him, the anointing will be released in us. And that anointing will tell us that he loves us and will also cause us to love him by anointing him into us. So these are the two main functions of the word. And the reason I mention this is that there's a sense in which the word itself is a realm in which we enter. 
So a big help for us in practicality, we have these two great things. We want to abide in him. One is that, again, we should fix the details and settings of our daily living as the matrix in which we live in him, number one. Number two, for our living him to not be totally abstract to us, which shouldn't be abstract to us when we live, as I mentioned in, in the first message, but to help it be more specific, he, as the spirit, who became the dwelling place into which we're to enter, took a step further and coalesced all that he is as that realm into the word. And so when we, with proper realization, enter into the word, we are entering into him. Is this too much? So, Point four says, we abide in Christ so that he may abide in us by dealing with the constant word in the scriptures, which is outside of us, and the present word as the spirit, which is within us. So the word outside of us is the Lord himself coalesced and embodied into the Logos word of the Bible that we have in our hands and we study. And as we read and enjoy this Logos word, the written word, which was the living word, become the written word, enters into us to become the Rima word, the indwelling word, and it speaks to us. It speaks to us. But in the principle of John 15, 4, the word entering into us as the Rima word depends upon what? Our entering into him as the word. So an aspect of the fixed Logos word is that the Lord himself, as the word, is a person realm into which we enter when we touch the Bible. I'm looking at your expressions, trying to... Okay. So, our first verse... <clears throat> John six, uh, John five thirty nine, and forty. The Pharisees uh, were told by the Lord, "You search the Scriptures, thinking that in them you will find eternal life." But, and it is that testify concerning me, but you are not willing to come to me that you would have life. So, the word of God at that ancient time was sought, was, was sought by 
the ancient Jews trying to find life. Now here's a question. They were trying to find life in the Word. Was there life there? Would they find life? Yes. So they never found it, and they still don't find it, because you have to come to the Word as Him. He is the Word. He is the Word. So, the incarnated God, the living Word, became the Spirit who is enterable, and and He also became the Word. And as as the um, Lord himself, as the Spirit is enterable, there's a sense that we can realize that when we enter into the Word, we enter into the Lord as the enterable Spirit. So, uh, if I could just read to you uh, from Brother Watchman Nee, from the Ministry of the Word, chapter 9, he says, the living Word of God as a person, the living Word of God as a person to whom we come is one... <clears throat> oh, sorry, that was the online point, sorry. This is Brother Nee. In one realm, the Bible is a book. In another realm... The Bible is Christ himself. If a person remains in the first realm, all he has is a book. Only those who are in the second realm can minister Christ to others. So I, I to uh, emphasize this point, I, um, you know, in, the word can only be that to us if we're his loving seekers. And so in the Old Testament, there's a book of the accounts of the Lord's loving seekers. And that's the Psalms. So the Psalms were the Lord's loving seekers. Then in the book of Psalms, there's one particular book that highlights to the uttermost the word of God. And the love of the Lord's loving seekers for the word because to them, the Word was the Lord. They loved the Word because as they entered into the Word, they, they found the Lord, they encountered the Lord, they entered into the Lord. So, uh, Psalm 119, 130. The uh, entering of your Word gives light. Now, do you remember the exposition on this lovely verse? The entering in of your word, or the entering of your word gives light. Here's the exposition by a loving seeker, by a psalmist. Okay. The literal Hebrew here is the entrance of your word gives light. And the sense is quite concrete 
It's not the verbal entrance, but it's that the word has a gate. An entrance, the word has a gate. And when you come to the when you come to the to the word, you arrive at a gate that's locked, but only on one side. Guess which side the lock is on? The lock is on our side, and only we can unlock the gate into the word. And the way you unlock the gate into the Word is by loving Him. If you love Him and are seeking His person and want to touch Him, the gate flies open and you enter the Word and in the Word as you've entered, you find light. Now, back to 1 John chapter 1. Who is light? Light is God is light. 1 John 1, 5. So you enter the entrance, the entering of the Word is light. As you enter into the Word, you have entered into God. So for our experience of the tree of life, as we want to abide in Him, we enter into the Word as His loving seekers. And from there, that activates the principle and releases the anointing within us. Now, another, another um, uh, another verse here is... Um, Verse 57, which says, O Lord, you are my portion. You are my portion. Now, in that ancient time, as is true in Colossians 1, 12, and 13, in that ancient time, for a Hebrew, for a psalmist to say, O Lord, you are my portion, what did that mean? That didn't mean that you're, you're the one I eat. It means you are the land. You are the land on which I live. So in verse 57, the psalmist came to the word and entered into the land, his land, in which he lived was God himself. And then one of the most lovely verses is Psalm 119.96. This verse is incredible. And part of it says, says, O Lord, your word is expansive, is expanding. So, what does this mean? This means that we enter into him and we explore him. We don't come to the boundary. We don't come to the fence line. As far as we go, it opens up more. It opens up more. It's expansive. It's enlarging. You never reach an end to it. So, as we enter into the Word and touch the Lord as the Word from within the Word, this is one of the ways that we abide in Him as the constant Word, and then that releases within us the anointing as the instant Word, for us to have his speaking and anointing within us. Point A says, by the outward written word, we have the explanation, definition, and expression of the mysterious Lord. And by the inward living word, we have the experience of the abiding Christ 
and the presence of the practical word. So once again, we abide, we, we enter into, and then we release the word within us. Point B, if we abide in the Lord's constant and, and written word, his instant and living words will abide in us. Again, John 15, 4a. Point C, we abide in him and his words abide in us so that we may speak in him and he may speak in us for the building of God into man and of man into God. Wonderful. So the more we abide in him, the more his words abide in us. And as as these verses indicate, we prophesy for the building up of the church. We speak Christ into others and he is built into, into them as a result, as a result of our abiding in him. So, saints, these are uh, incentives, meant to be incentives, to cause our daily living, which is filled with opportunities for us, to contact the Lord in every detail, and as such, for us to have our living be encased in him, to thusly abide in him, and release the riches of his life into us through the divine anointing. Number one, we abide in him. It's a royal experience. Number two, it's a spousal experience. Number three, it's an eternally satisfying experience. Number four, it's the experience that releases the mind of Christ, the anointing of the Lord, and is speaking into us. And finally, finally, the word of God is an aspect of our abiding in him so that he can abide in us. So um, I hope you can come back tomorrow. We'll have more, uh, more aspects of abiding in him so that he can abide in us as the tree of life. Okay, so uh, we have about 18 minutes or so, something like that. So if we come up and confirm the word, uh, we'll have the piano ding to make it a little easier.